Go ahead and take a seat, please. You can be opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We will be uh, in verse 21 and following uh, this morning. It was probably a couple of years ago that my in-laws were having dinner at, we shall just say, a fine American institution. My father-in-law, Phil, was a couple of bites into his mashed potatoes until he noticed a cockroach in his mashed potatoes. Now, I want, to imagine, I want you to imagine if that happened to you, what you would do, not of all the variety of, of foods, but, but the first option is this. Option number one, you simply continue eating the mashed potatoes. Raise your hand if that's what you would do. We got one, two, three, four. Uh, if you would refuse to eat and possibly uh, refuse to pay for the meal, go ahead and raise your hand. Oh, okay, so most people are not participating, which means we're going to start again. <laughs> if you would eat the mashed potatoes, raise your hand. All right, we still got four there, okay. If you would not eat the mashed potatoes, raise your hand. Okay, all right, good. I, I was going to say I am a terrible judge of human character if I did not know how that was going to turn out, but it turned out as I had assumed. Now the question is, why? Why? Just because you find one little measly cockroach would most of you, most sensible people will call them, decide not to eat the mashed potatoes. Well, that was a, an area of interest to a guy named Paul Rosen who decided to study the psychology of disgust. And, and in it, particularly, he wanted to look at two aspects. He, he said he found out that there are some things that are what he calls positive dominant, and some things are negative dominant. Things that are negative dominant are things that we believe when they come in contact with things that are good, they will make the things they come in contact with bad or terrible or awful. And so Rosen will say, most of us believe that the cockroach is negative dominant. It touches the mashed potatoes and we're done with the mashed potatoes. But it says the opposite doesn't happen. You don't have a bowl, a bowl of cockroaches and then you add a spoonful of mashed potatoes and then you say, well, now I'm going to eat this. Because we believe that cockroaches are negative dominant. Whatever they come in contact with, they will make that thing they touch bad, terrible, awful. But then there are some things that Rosen says are positive dominant. That when things come in contact with those things, they actually make things good and pure once again. So when we lived in New Guinea, specifically when we went to the villages, uh, it's not unusual you would be handed a glass of water and you'd look at it and you could just see stuff floating. So I would always carry these iodine tablets. I'd put the iodine tablet in the water, I'd wait 10 minutes and then I would drink it because I believed, hopefully, had to do something because I'm still living, that those iodine tablets were positive dominant. When they came in contact with impurities that they would actually purify them in a way that we could uh, drink or consume that water. And as we think about these two kind of concepts of being either negative dominant or positive dominant, I think that most of us will realize those categories exist for many in their spiritual lives as well. There's something that people have over and over again seemed to wrestle with, which is what is more dominant? The, the ongoing negative impact of my sin as a negative dominant thing or the ongoing work of Jesus on the cross in terms of a positive dominant thing. I mean, consider the story of Joan. 
Joan's dad was alcoholic and her mother was codependent. And that would mean when her dad would fly into one of his alcoholic rages afterwards, her mom would say to her, if you were more appreciative of your father, your father wouldn't be so angry. And so Joan began to believe that there was something innately in her that was negative dominant. That whatever situation she was in, she was going to ruin it. She was going to sully it. She was going to spoil it. And so because of that, when she uh, became a teenager, she decided why even try to do what is good or right. And so she got caught up in a lot of things that she should not have been doing. She did later, by uh, meeting a friend, she was converted to Christianity. But even years after being a Christian, she continued to wrestle with this question. Is the history of all of my sins, is it, is it such that it's, it's too negative dominant? Or is it possible in my life that what Christ has done even can bring healing and cleansing to me? It's one of those things that Joan knew in her head, but that her heart was struggling to catch up with that message. And we've, none of us have met Joan, but I suspect that we've encountered Joan at different parts of our lives. For some of you, you may have encountered Joan when you look in the mirror and you see your own life and you see your own history and you say, I really wonder if we were to stack up all of my sins in the work of Christ, which really is a stronger, more powerful work. Some of you have probably seen it in relationships within your family, a spouse or children who continue to be burdened with this idea that I am sure that no matter what Christ has done, it's not powerful enough to address all of the things that I have done. Some of you have seen it in fellow Christians who have been Christians for a long, long time and yet they still carry a guilt, they still carry a weight and a burden, assuming that it's not possible that the, dominant, the positive dominance of Christ's blood could continue to work and be effective for them. And my prayer is that this morning our text, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, will allow the Spirit to shine some light into those hearts that need to see the positive dominance of the blood of Christ. So we begin in Romans chapter 5, verse, 20, uh, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all, because all have sinned. We're going to handle this passage a little bit different than we often do. We'll go verse by verse. But, but here Paul actually starts several different ideas. He stops, he goes somewhere else, he stops, he goes somewhere else. And so I'm going to try and just put it into maybe a, a coherent way of thinking. You'll see this word just as uh, one Bible dictionary says it's a marker of comparison or connection. Interestingly, Paul begins the comparison in verse 12, but he doesn't get back to it until verse 18. And so we want to explore a little bit what's happening in between these two places, but clearly Paul is wanting to set up a point of comparison for us. That comparison, we will find out, is between Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. And of course, the one who is to come is Christ. But Adam serves then as a type. So there's something in the comparison between Adam and Christ that they both share in common. And the type is this. Both are humans who do something that impacts all humanity. And what Paul's going to want to do is he's going to want to explore the nature of the impact of Adam and the nature of the impact of what Christ has done. But then Paul does this very strange unusual thing is he's exploring really ultimately is the long-lasting negative dominance what Adam has done is that overpowering the positive dominance of what Christ has done but he begins in this way in chapter 5 verse 15a but 
the free gift is not like the trespass. So here's what Paul's doing. Paul's saying, we're going to do a comparison in this text. The comparison is between Christ and Adam. But before we do the comparison, I just want to let you know there really is no comparison. That if you think that by comparing these two, we're going to say in any way they are similar or alike, well, that's not really right. So in English, we'll often say, well, that's like comparing apples to oranges. Have you ever heard that? In, in biblical theological language, it'd be like, well, that's like comparing Adam and Christ. There really is no comparison. And so Paul says, I'm going to compare them. But before we start, I want you to know that if you really try to think they're similar, they're not similar at all. So notice how he does here. For the many died through the one man's trespass. Much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound for the many. So what Paul is saying here is he is saying, let's compare this free gift, the free gift of Jesus Christ. He said, if you look at that free gift, that is something that had been planned for a long, long time. It had been purposed, it had been willed, and God intentionally has this long plan and purpose. Compare that to Adam's sin. Adam's sin was this momentary foolishness, this momentary rebellion. And Paul is going to say, which do you think is going to have a more powerful impact? Something that somebody does in a moment or an instant, or something that has been planned and purposed. And so Paul will say, much more surely. Saying, we're going to compare them, but just remember this in the comparison. Much more surely powerful is what God accomplishes intentionally according to his nature, through Christ. So then, Paul will go on in 5.16, and he will say, got to get caught up in my notes here, and the free gift is not like the effect of one man's sin. So once again, you say, okay, okay we're going to compare them, but just know this, the effect of them, they're not even worth comparing them, because one, again, is much more powerful than the other. And so Paul will then go on to write, if it is because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one. And notice these words again. Much more surely will those who receive the gift and the abundance, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So if you hadn't caught it yet, Paul is emphasizing and re-emphasizing, I'm going to do a comparison. But you just have to know from the beginning, there really is no comparison. And I think that should give us a good framework as we say, well, what's more dominant, the sins of Adam and Adam's descendants or the, sin, the righteousness of Christ? And Paul tells us, we're going to compare them, but just know there really is no comparison. It should be very clear to all what is more dominant as Paul prepares to make this comparison. And so it is in the 18th verse that Paul now will talk about more specifically about the nature of the comparison. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. But the law came in with the result that trespasses multiplied but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might also exercise dominion through justification, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our 
Lord. So let's look at this first column, this first comparison, which is Adam. And Paul will, in this text, introduce three things specifically that Adam did. Adam sinned, Adam committed a trespass, and Adam was disobedient. The word for disobedient there is the word that he heard but did not obey what he was told to do. And so if we're, we're wondering, and if we're not familiar with Scripture, I say, well, what is this referring to? And of course, those of us who are familiar with Scripture know we're referring back to something that happened in the, the early books of Genesis, where God had made a command, given a command to Adam. You may eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. And of course, it's just a chapter and a few verses later that Eve also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Adam sins. Adam trespasses. Adam is disobedient to the command of God. And then what are the results? What is the impact of that sin? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, so death spread to all, because all have sinned. Now, if you're familiar at all with very much of biblical studies throughout the ages, you'll find that people have interpreted and understood this passage to mean some very different things in terms of what is the nature of the impact of what Adam did for humanity. And I'm going to just quickly run through four of those options and we'll talk about what seems to be the best pathway forward. Some people say the impact is, is just, it's all indirect impact. That, that the impact falls simply on the larger environment, but as far as humans, as far as individuals, we are not directly impacted in any way. Others will say there is a direct impact that is physical death comes to humanity, but in terms of our spiritual condition, there is no impact at all. Then some will say that there is a direct impact on physical death. There is also a weakening of our spiritual nature, but it is not an inheritance of guilt. It's simply an inheritance of the consequences of Adam's sin. And then the fourth, some will say we die physically, we are given a depraved nature, and we are considered guilty, all people from the point of birth. And so which of these seems to represent what Paul is saying? Here's how I would summarize what I believe Paul is saying, is that Adam opened a door that brought sin and death into the world. Uh, at, at the very least, it's, it's kind of like Pandora's box where, where this, this event happens, and then after, you can't get that event back. Because Paul will talk about sin and death as, as these forces that continue to be at work in the world. Here's just some sections from chapter 5 to chapter 6 where we'll get a sense that Paul personifies. He gives these, these, these almost human-like characteristics to sin and death. Death exercised dominion. That mean, word means to rule or to reign or to be king. So death exercised this dominion from Adam to Moses. Death exercised dominion through that one. Sin exercised dominion in death. Paul talks about the cross so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Death no longer has dominion over him, that being Christ. And then Paul says, do not let sin exercise dominion in your mortal bodies. He speaks of times when we were slaves to sin. And he says, we have been freed from sin and enslaved to God. So, so do you see what Paul is saying? He's saying that there is this recognition that, that death and that sin are these forces that are at work in the world. And so all of us will experience this consequence 
from Adam's sin. There is a direct consequence, I believe, in that that physical death comes into the world. The other thing we recognize is that Adam essentially opens the door and he unleashes the forces of sin and the forces of death. And then they create this dominion over people. They seek to rule over individuals. And you might say, well, is that really fair? That, that, that somebody could make a decision that I then will inherit some of the consequences of that decision. And I would simply say, if you look around at the world, that is constantly happening, isn't it? If you're under the age of 18, you are subjected to a president that you did not vote for. You are now inheriting the decisions of those who came before you. We recognize over and over again that there are decisions that can be made by others that create an environment that may be harder or more difficult for us. But we also recognize Adam opened the door that brought sin and death into the world. But we still decide if we're going to enter into that door. We do see what Paul says. The death spread to all because all have sinned. Adam opens the door and each of us recognize that we have walked through that same door. We have participated in sin in the very same way that Adam has participated in sin. Notice this is just just the next chapter and it gives us a sense. We're not talking about people being controlled in a way that they cannot choose whether they're going to enter the door of sin and death. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Is there a possibility for Cain to make a choice here? A decision that he will be right or righteous on the basis of that decision? Absolutely. He says, but sin is lurking at your door. Why is sin lurking at your door? Because Adam opened the door and sin is now at work in the world. Sin is lurking out there, Cain. And you need to be careful that it does not impact you to make a choice. It desires, it's desires for you. But you must what? Master it. It means we have the ability to master the forces that are at work in sin and in death. So this is the one category. Adam, what he did, what was inherited by us as people. And then we ask the question, what did Christ do? Three things that are mentioned, specifically what Christ did. Number one, it's called the gift or the free gift, depending on your translation. It's called the act of righteousness, and it is called obedience. So Christ does these things that Adam should have done in the first place. And I think all three of these words are pointing directly to the cross and what Jesus did on the cross. You notice the language similarity in Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That word for obedience is the same word used here. Christ goes to the cross. There is this righteous work that is done. And then we have to say, well, then what was the implication or the impact on his actions? It brings justification. It brings righteousness And it brings life. It allows us to be exercised by the dominion of life. And I think if we look at the comparison, it becomes clear very, very quickly that the positive dominance of Christ's work overpowered the negative dominance of what Adam did in his sin. That there is no comparing There is no way that one can say that a sin made by Adam or a son or a daughter of Adam will in any way be too powerful for the righteousness of Christ to heal and to address. In fact, Paul's Paul's most prominent point here is for us to recognize 
that everything that Adam did and whatever those implications are, are no longer at work because Christ has given an alternative option to us. And so I think there's two responses that Paul would call us to out of this text. And the first is the response of responding to Christ. Just like Adam opened a door, I believe that Christ also opens a door. And we also have to decide, will we enter into the open door? We respond to Christ on the basis of faith in the waters of baptism, something that we're going to witness after this service when Amber is going to be baptized. This choosing and this recognition that what Christ has done is dominant over the sins that we have done. And I find it interesting that there's really two different ways that we tend to, to, to view our sins in relationship to Christ's work on the cross. Some people believe my sins are not too bad. Some people actually believe that, that well, you know, I mean, I, I'm not as bad that I really would need anyone to do anything dominant over my sins. And yet Paul has addressed this in Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who suppress the wickedness of those who suppress the truth. What then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. For we have all already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, are under the power of sin as it is written. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. So the first thing Paul makes an effort to say, for people who say, well, my sins are not too bad, Paul says, they're much worse than you think. And then there are those who say, but, but my sins are too bad. And for those, Paul will also make the case that there is no such thing as sins being too bad that Christ cannot be at work in them. He says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. So it doesn't matter whichever perspective you come from. You say, well, my sins are not too bad. Paul will say, oh, yes, they are. And so he elevates the significance of sin. And then you say, oh, well, then maybe they're so much so that Christ couldn't do anything. And then he de-elevates them in light of saying what Christ can do. So the first thing we each need to do is make sure we respond to Christ on the basis of faith in the waters of baptism. But then the, the second thing that we do as we respond to Christ is we need to learn to rest in Christ. Remember Joan at the start of our sermon? She did all these terrible things when she was younger and she was sure that there was no way that Christ could accept her, that Christ could forgive her, even after she became a Christian. And so she reached out to a friend named Greg and he started off asking her, what, what has she been doing these last few years? What is she, how has she been dealing with it? And, and, and Greg says, summarized all the things that she was told to do was just try harder, was essentially the advice she got. You know, try harder, try harder. And he said, instead of trying harder, let's try resting in Christ. And he reintroduced her to these passages, like passages we looked at today, that simply said, look at how powerful the blood of Christ is. And all we need to do is we need to rest in the assurance that the blood of Christ is positive dominant over any sins and over any wrongdoing that we ever could have done. And when we allow that knowledge to move from our head to our heart, we can rest assured, not based on our own righteousness, but based on assurance that what Christ accomplished is much more surely greater than anything that Adam could have damaged. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you 
and be gracious toward you. May the Lord turn towards you and give you peace. And as we go from here, we know we go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God, and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing a song, and as we do that, I'll be in the back, and a couple of our elders will be in the back. If you want somebody to talk to, someone to pray with, if, if you'd like to respond, I um, invite you to do that while we stand and sing this song together.